Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. It is a very great pleasure to be here with you and my guest to share with you some new conversation. That's right, uh, here on uh, this program that's been around for almost 15 years, uh, I guess you could say, with a certain level of experience of I've kind of tabulated this at around 44 years, 43, 44 years, maybe even longer than that, especially considering the fact that my first interview was at the age of 12, and then I had a hiatus until 19. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, But we're not going to delay this program with the preliminaries right now. What we're going to do is jump right into our very special guest and a conversation we're going to have regarding conscious recovery it is a fresh perspective on addiction and our special guest today uh comes to us a little north of us here uh we hope that uh maybe you get a chance to get up that way uh tj woodard woodward tj woodward i was going to get that right by the way tj woodward t-j-w-o-o-d WARD.com is the website. And by the way, he happens to be a revolutionary recovery expert, best-selling author, inspirational speaker. He's an educator and addiction treatment specialist who has helped countless people through his simple yet powerful teachings. TJ, thank you so much for being with us here on the program. I know that in the world in which we live today, it is a huge huge issue it absolutely is and i am delighted for the invitation and you know there's nothing more important to me than talking about how we help people heal because we are seeing uh the new pandemic and that is mental health concerns and addiction it's not really that new but we're seeing a huge um increase in all of that happening in our world right now and i have to say that's uh Maybe because of what we have been through uh, from 2020 to the present is a great contributor to that. Is that a fair assessment or is there something else going on here that we're not aware of? I would say it's been a perfect storm and that is one of the elements or the components that has absolutely caused suicide rates to skyrocket, addiction rates to skyrocket. More people are now having issues with mental health um, and absolutely the pandemic contributed to that regardless of how you feel. You know, it's such a polarized topic, but one thing we know for sure is people felt isolated and disconnected and with isolation and disconnection that activates or triggers all of this that was always there under the surface but it brought a lot of things to the surface and i like to think for healing but first it shows up as all these other symptoms that we have an opportunity to work with now and if that's the case as you say that it's always been there um it leads me to wonder um if maybe that sounds a little odd, a little strange, the pandemic was actually a good thing because there are many people who feel this way that we're having conversations we didn't have before. 
Yeah, I, I do think there's an opportunity here. I, you know, I wouldn't say the pandemic was a bad thing or a good thing. I say something happens and then we create the meaning around it, right? And so many people are saying, oh, it was so horrible. And of course, people lost people. There was division. There was polarization. There was isolation. All the things we could list that one could call negative or bad. But we can also say, wow, in the midst of that, there was also this global awakening that was happening because as you so perfectly said, some conversations that have been needing to happen have been happening. So for that, we can say there are some really wonderful things that are coming from it. Doesn't mean it wasn't painful or difficult or that people suffered loss. It does mean that we have an opportunity now to actually use this as something that can be transformational. And that's part of the work that you do. Um, I'm curious, as far as your background, do you come from a background of addiction, either personally or relationally? Yes and yes. <laughs> you know, I used to say <laughs> I used to say I didn't grow up in an addicted household, but then with some time and looking back at some of the strategies both of my parents used, um, we can definitely say there was addiction, not classic addiction with drugs or alcohol. Although I will say my mother loved those little diet pills. And back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, they were basically crystal meth. So there was addiction in my household. There was a lot of um, unresolved pain growing up for me. And I did turn to substance um, use um, myself when I was 14, got sober young um, just before I turned 21. So almost 37 years ago. But those years, those, you know, 14 to 21 were uh, very painful in many, many ways. Wow. Now, what characterizes an addiction? Because there are those who will say, well, I don't have an addiction. I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I'm normal. I'm a normal kind of guy in this case. And uh, I'm not drinking excessively. Matter of fact, I rarely drink um, and I don't take drugs. I'm not using, for example, I don't uh, go and uh, buy uh, uh, from the local pot shop, as we'll just call them, you know, because that's what they are across the country, you know, legalizing marijuana. And, and of course, these uh, places like here in California, you have what's called a, one of them anyway, is a pharmacy started spelled with an F. You can go in there and you can buy stuff to smoke. You can buy uh, uh, tinctures, if you will, to put under your tongue. You can buy gummies. You can buy tablets. You can buy. All... I'm just not into that. It's just, you know, and I, I know that it helps a lot of people. Uh, but um, is it true to say that no one has addictions, that, that there may actually be a segment of our society that is addiction free? Well, it's interesting that you asked that because it's a huge topic and in some ways it can be controversial. I actually, even though here is my book, Conscious Recovery, A Fresh Perspective on Addiction, I think the paradigm, because you know, you talked about new paradigm and that's part of your platform, right? Mm -hmm. The old paradigm was this idea that addiction was somehow a disease and certain people had it have it and certain pe certain people don't and uh we look at like some genetic you know things that lead to that and maybe we say we have a predisposition i actually wanted to kind of 
for a moment, set that aside and, and look at a much broader definition. And we might not even really use the word addiction when we look at it this way. Right. But if right. I feel damaged or broken within, and I'm looking for someone or something outside of myself to try to heal that which feels broken, and I use it repetitively, we could call that an addiction. Or maybe we don't call any, any of it an addiction, but we look at what actually is required for us to heal. So we're not looking outward for some relief. And, you know, people drink, people, you know, do their gummies and all the different things they do. And they might not become addicted to it. That's true. And um, we certainly don't call it an addiction. As long as it's working, we call it fun, or we call it relief. It's generally not until it starts starts causing problems that we say, oh, maybe this is an issue. So if we look at that in a broad way, I mean, our culture right now is addicted to drama. We're addicted to divisiveness. There's so many things that we could say we're addicted to. So I actually wrote my third book, Conscious Creation, because a lot of people said, oh, I'm not, I don't have any addiction issues. So I really, your book doesn't apply to me. So I wrote a book for everyone that will help us actually heal some of these deep root causes that we see so prevalent in our culture now. So was this aspect of addiction in your life in the past, the catalyst, if you will, for wanting to come up with what you've come up with here, the conscious recovery method, as well as your, your three books. Yeah. I, the, the slightly longer story is I actually remember being a young child and being absolutely filled with joy, awe, and wonder, curiosity. I felt like the luckiest person alive. And I, through a series of events, I closed my heart or it almost felt like my heart actually closed. Like it wasn't even me doing it. But by the time I was seven, I had already made some major life decisions. Like I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. And the world isn't safe. And I remember a sensation of closing off and walking around that way. So by the time I discovered, in my case, weed and alcohol by 13 or 14, it was a huge relief. And then, as I said, I got sober uh, young, right before I turned 21. But something really powerful happened. And that was when I was around 18 months to two years sober, I found myself suicidal. And the reason that I found myself suicidal is I hadn't yet addressed any of the underlying root causes of my addiction. I met a woman who changed my life, who took me on a journey that I would call a spiritual journey of returning to my true nature, returning to that pre-programmed human, that innocence, that infinite being that we all are. And so from that experience, which obviously we could talk about for hours, but from that experience, when I started working in the addiction treatment field in 2008, I created the conscious recovery method, honestly, to share what saved my life. And it's now my mission to share it with as many humans as possible while I, while I have the honor of being here on planet Earth. That's an interesting way of putting it. I like that, having the honor of being here on planet Earth. I've actually heard this from one of my other guests that uh, uh, the the uh, the beings, if you will, the essences, the angels, if you will, on the other side, uh, as we are, would term it, are actually uh, looking at all of us who are here today as heroes because we've chosen to be here at this time. And it's an interesting perspective. I had never really 
uh, never really looked at it that way. Uh, before we continue, I want to remind you that you are listening to a conversation between yours truly, Richard Dugan, and uh, our very special guest, T.J. Woodward. And tjwoodward.com is the web website we will be linked to, and you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, it is a distinct pleasure to have uh, an uh, well, I, I hope this is an appropriate phrase, an expert on addiction, or at least let's let's rephrase that an expert on recovery uh, yes. from addiction. And there's an element of addiction that a lot of people have trouble with. Uh, and that has to do with that aspect when they begin down the road of recovery of forgiveness and it is something that is interesting to me because it's a part of uh, one of these processes where I'm trying to, if I get sucked into something, especially from the news, I guess that that would be an addiction for me. So I try to stay out of it, which is sort of an irony considering the business I'm in, isn't it? It sure is. But and I, I relate went through this phase of thank you teacher for teaching me how not to be the second phase was, and this is where I want us to dive into. I forgive you, but more importantly, I forgive myself for allowing myself to be. And I use this word dragged into that quagmire. Talk to us about the importance of forgiving self. Well, I'll start with one of the funniest things to me about writing a book is it's there in print. And two years later or 15 minutes later, I would say, oh, I have a different way of viewing this now. So I use the word forgiveness throughout the book, Conscious Recovery. And now I'm like, let's let's look at that word because the word is so deeply entrenched in the idea of good and bad and right and wrong that many of us get stuck there. So at one point, between books two and three, I said, oh, I'm going to change this word and I'm going to start calling it making peace with the past. Because what I discovered is when we think of forgiveness, we often think about it as someone has done something so horrible and I have to find a way to forgive them. Or I've done something that's so horrible, even if it's what you said, that I allowed myself to be in these situations where I was harmed. And when we're stuck in this idea of good and bad and right and wrong, it's very difficult to actually forgive. When we say, regardless of what has happened and regardless of what I have done, is it possible for me to make peace with it? Because as we know, forgiveness isn't about the other person. It's about finally having freedom and realizing that we can take our power back now and not keep giving it away to something that in some cases has happened decades ago. Hmm. And there is also, if, if I'm understanding correctly, there is also an element of, in that forgiveness, of accepting responsibility and it's almost as though you've got to come to that place before you can go to the forgiveness stage, because why would you forgive yourself if you didn't take responsibility for making the choices, whether you were coerced or whatever? Um, and I suppose in one sense, unless someone was holding a gun to your head, um, you made these choices 
maybe and it may have been these choices were made based upon that addiction uh how about how about that aspect yeah and you're really speaking to me to the heart of this because as long as i'm holding on to this idea for example we think if the other person apologizes i'm going to have freedom we see that in our justice system we think if we kill the person who killed someone suddenly we're going to feel better but we know it doesn't really work mm-hmm. What really needs to happen is what you're saying is that I need to be accountable. Now, the way I like to speak about it is I'm not necessarily accountable for what happened. In some cases, I am, right? I showed up, I did it. But some things happen that are completely beyond our control, especially as little kids, mm-hmm. you know, working with people who have had sexual trauma. We're not saying you're accountable for choosing to show up for that. But what we are saying is the event happened. We're not going to say it was right or wrong or good or bad. And of course, it was painful for people. What we're going to say is the story is still alive in me. I'm the one that's still holding on to it. That's where the accountability piece comes in. I can be accountable for what I do with it. And I want to be really clear. What I'm not saying is it wasn't painful or what happened wasn't horrific. What I am saying is, I'm the one that's now accountable and responsible for what I do with the story. Something happens, I create a story around it, and usually the story is something deeply buried, or in many cases, let's look at something like kind of severe, like sexual trauma. A little child doesn't really understand what's happening. Our brain isn't even developed. So we might believe it's our fault. We understand it's not, but as a little kid, we might take that on, or we might think something's wrong with us fundamentally. So we have these huge decisions that we need to look at and unlearn and untangle. And when we're stuck on, if that person can just, if if justice is served or if they can just apologize, then I'll be free. But the truth is, it's something that's now happening within that we need to find internal freedom. Hmm. Well, I will tell you that, that it is, it is a fascinating journey, or at least it can be a fast, I should say, a fascinating journey, um, because um, what we learn about ourselves actually frees us, as it, as it says in the New Testament, for example, my orientation being born and raised Roman Catholic. I worked for 15 years for a Christian radio station, and I always talked about how uh, ye shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, you can apply that if you want to the truths of the book or the truth is about self. It's part of what we promote here. And I'm, I want you to dive into this as well as we continue uh, here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, we are talking with uh, TJ Woodward. And uh, <clears throat> we are excited to have him here because I think that it's going to help all of us, not only those who have addictions, but those who are faced with people in our lives who have addictions and how we need to respond. And we'll get into that a little bit later, but I wanted to dive into the aspect of um, guidance. Now, yes, there are therapists, yourself included, who who work with people. You're a, what we call a facilitator. But one of the things we promote on this program, and we did it back in uh, 2019, we started encouraging people Uh, They didn't necessarily have to wait until 2020, but we said, join us and uh, spend some time going within during this decade of perfect or this year of perfect vision 2020, then the decade of perfect vision called the 2020s. Going within that quiet 
calm, peaceful, still, quiet place and listening to that still small voice. Talk to us about the incorporation of listening, of following our, some say it's the gut feeling, some use the word intuition. I, I myself, I do like uh, uh, the still small voice. Uh, talk to us about the incorporation in the process of recovery. Well, this is something that is so important to me. And actually my third book, Conscious Creation, I've created an acronym about how to consciously create our life. And I use five-step process using the acronym movie, creating a new movie for our life. And third step is visioning, which is that listening step. But just for a moment, I want to talk about the first two, which we've already kind of touched on. And that is making peace with the past and overcoming core false beliefs. Because what I see happening is people try to consciously create their life through their minds. This is what I want to create. It's so popular now in our culture for the last couple of decades. We do the vision boards. Um, you know, the movie, The Secret came out and we say, we, we figure out what we want to create and we think it into existence. And what we're offering here is something to me, much deeper, more effective. And it actually is, is much less about me and more about we, and that is making peace with the past, overcoming core false beliefs so that we can actually be still enough to listen to that voice that's mm -hmm. within. And through a process of listening through inquiry, we ask questions rather than saying, this is what I think I want. And for many of us, definitely myself included, I did the vision boards. I did the manifestations. I did all that. And honestly, I got everything that I put on the vision board. And I was like, is this all there is? It didn't bring fulfillment. <laughs> It didn't bring happiness. It didn't change the way I felt. It just created this kind of existential crisis for me. And I loved the existential crisis because then I started asking, is this all there is, which shifted to what more is there? And mm -hmm. that's when I went on a much deeper journey of listening to the what what you call the still small voice. And I like to say it starts still and small, but it can become clear and loud and it can become the not loud necessarily but it can become the predominant voice that we run our lives by and from and that's when things start to get really fascinating and interesting and it's less about me and what i want to get and more about how i want to be so we switch from the law of attraction which is very popular to the law of radiance and that shift changes everything all right well let's talk about the law of radiance uh, it it is not a new word for me, but it's an interesting uh, take in terms of uh, some of these laws. I I I actually subscribe to a number of different laws of the universe, especially when it comes to giving and receiving. For example, there can't be a giver unless there's a receiver, and there's the law of exchange. The universe abhors a vacuum, ergo there is always an exchange. It just may, may not be the way that you think. So talk to us a little bit about the law of radiance. Well, when we when we look at the law of attraction, we tend to think I want to attract things in my life that I want. Mm -hmm. When we shift to the law of radiance, we start with as we already said, clear being clear enough to listen to that inner wisdom and then creating intentions from that and then we start to radiate that instead of trying to attract it and it's just a complete game changer because then it's not i need to get this so that i can be happy and most people aren't saying that but on some level 
We might think if I can just get the perfect partner, I'll be happy. If I get the perfect job, if I get the next promotion, the next degree, all these things, it's a destination addiction. We're saying we came into the world as infinite beings. Some would use the word spiritual. Some might not. Buddhists would say the Buddha nature. Uh, Christians might say God consciousness. Whatever word we use for our deep knowing mm -hmm. and that radiant being that we are, when we start to put that out into the world, then the world starts to respond to that in new and miraculous ways. And we're not manifesting anything. It's always been available, but I literally couldn't see it because I was in a paradigm of I'm broken and I need you to fix me. And that's just never going to really actually work or certainly not work long-term. That's another element that you've raised. And maybe this is still part of the law of radiance. And that is uh, people on the other side, we're going to kind of go into this area now in terms of those people who are watching the addiction, watching the person's life in a manner of speaking sort of slip away. Uh, and they want to help. They want to do something, you know, but they also know that unless this person makes the choice, the conscious choice, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to happen. Um. When a person finally reaches that initial stage, not an easy one, I'm sure, but initial stage, I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop doing whatever it is. And then hours, days, weeks go by and they say, well, you know what? I've been so good. I haven't done this thing. I deserve. Okay. And it seems to me that the challenge is to say to this person with love, that is not how this works. You don't get to celebrate with indulging in the addiction again. Now, if you're part of a 12-step a program, here's your coin. Here's your disc. Celebrate with your disc. Okay. They give you that, that little marker for one week, one month, I guess, uh, and so forth. And and yet that's really what has to be reinforced to the addicted is, no, we'll find another way to celebrate that does not take you back, you know, one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. Talk to us about the relationship between uh, the uh, addicted and the... Uh, relative the the community let's we'll use the word community well i want to start by offering a book suggestion it's a book called conscious bravery by pamela brinker and it's a book that's recently come into my awareness and that is written specifically for loved ones of people who are going through addiction or recovery in conscious recovery i don't talk a lot about it i don't write a lot about it so i'm grateful for that resource but i want to offer that First, I want to talk about the old paradigm. The old paradigm is one in which we say something like the person needs to hit bottom in order to get help. No one can help them until they learn that they need to help themselves. They have to become willing. Mm -hmm. And although I understand how true that is, I want to speak in nuance and paradox, actually, because there's when we think about tough love, I think, well, is that even possible for those two to exist? I know that might might be controversial because that's been the paradigm. We need to set boundaries. We need to tell them, if you don't get sober, I'm going to withdraw my love from you. 
I actually don't think that's effective or not in the long term. So here's where it gets nuanced. I want to be able to acknowledge for another person that they have everything within them that that they can actually heal from addiction. But then there's a place where we say, you know, if I'm a parent, that doesn't mean I'm going to keep paying your rent, right? There needs to be some consequences in many cases. But here's what I want to say that, you know, when we think about powerful but simple, I have this idea, no one changes unless they want to. The issue, though, is many of us aren't aware of what we really want. And so when we say addiction is bad or wrong and you shouldn't be doing it, nothing could be truer but less useful. When we say addiction, and this is where conscious recovery comes in, I say addiction is a brilliant strategy, not a coping mechanism. It's mm -hmm. something that was brilliant that has really helped you help someone to get in touch and all, with all the ways it has served them, then we can start to say, what are the ways it hasn't? What do you truly desire? In other words, I, to the best of my ability, I need to check my biases and say, my biases and say, do I think this person needs to get sober? As soon as I'm in that, we're in a struggle. Hmm. When I say to them, when I'm fighting with, you know, I, you know, working in the addiction treatment field, when someone wants to leave treatment, and the staff, the medical team says they're not ready. It's what we call against medical advice. They're going to leave. I see people trying to talk them into staying. And I used to be in the position of talking with someone who wanted to leave treatment. And I would start with saying, I'm not here to talk you into staying. I'm here to be curious with you. Mm -hmm. What brought you here? Right. Once someone starts getting in touch with the ways addiction has helped them and addiction hasn't, when we get down to what we truly desire, instead of me sort of being at, in a tug of war with the part of them who wants to leave, we can be curious about even if it's a little tiny part of them who wants to stay, we can put focus on that. And to me, that is a complete game changer in this entire paradigm. We're talking with TJ Woodward, and we are talking about addiction recovery, and we're going to continue doing so here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, uh, T.J. Woodward. I want to thank you. Uh, this is this is fascinating stuff, and I'm glad that you are are in. Shall we? Uh, on the one hand, I'm glad you're in the business you're in. Okay. On the other hand, I wish you weren't in the business you were in. Right. You know. <laughs> you know I, yeah. It's like I know you personally would like to go out of business, so to speak. Yes. Yes, that is true. But, I mean, there's all there's always going to be opportunities for people to wake up more, but I would love to not have to be on the front lines of watching people die and, and you know, killing yeah. themselves and making the choice not to be here and families being broken, all of that. I would love to see us get get out of that business. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, there's a success story that I can tell you about. Uh, I'll keep it anonymous where I know someone who was takes it, taking an oxy product. I can't remember if it was oxycodone or oxy, whatever. I don't know. Uh, it was for, I think it was originally prescribed for pain management, maybe anxiety, depression. I, I, I just don't recall. What I do know is this person, an applause from her doctor, was able to wean herself off that product, that, that drug. And I know that Unfortunately, there were there have been hundreds of thousands who unfortunately have probably have lost their lives and lost everything in this world as well uh, from that particular addiction. 
and uh, you know, not going to sit here and start casting blame. The reality is that that's what's going on in this country, but it's happening with a lot of other things too. And then there's this other area which is deadly. And that is that there are things coming into this country and sometimes even manufactured here that are laced with another very horrific chemical uh, um, fentanyl. I mean, that's not something that you become addicted to. That's something that will the first time can kill you. You definitely check out. And I have to wonder what, you know, is what is going on uh, with 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 all of this in terms of people turning? So that's kind of what we talked about at the beginning in dealing with these traumas. You mentioned something earlier too about, um, I don't know if that the word was perceived, but but traumas that we have actually taken on that weren't really ours to take on because we misinterpreted what was going on. Yeah. And, you know, it's a very tricky thing because I've had people say to me, it sounds like you're victim blaming when I say, let's take our power back and realize that it's only alive within me now. What I'm not saying is the event didn't happen. But what you're pointing to is something that I can share out of my own story. And that is when I got into recovery, I called my sisters back when we had cords on phones i would pick mm. that phone up or i'd put it on my <laughs> ear, dial down there you know this was a long time ago but i was asking them to tell me their versions of the story because i knew enough to know that they would have different versions different mm -hmm. perspectives yeah what yeah. was startling to me and it was a huge wake-up call was they had totally different stories i had a story that my dad was never there he was always busy with people who weren't my mother we're just going to leave it at that he was never home Therefore, I decided that I was unlovable, not that it was his fault, but because he wasn't home, I decided I was unlovable. My sister, on the other hand, said, what are you talking about? Our dad was home every night for dinner. We went on these amazing vacations. He was so present and so loving. And it was just mind blowing for me mm -hmm. because I thought if I could figure out exactly what happened, I could be free. But then I found out in this really startling way that we both had different stories. And these stories, we could debate which one was true, but the reality is it's our perception that created the core decisions we made about ourselves and therefore the trajectory of our lives. So we can actually go back and heal that. It doesn't mean we say, oh, she must be right. Dad must have always been there and I was wrong. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying my little brain six years old, five years old, seven years old, I'm interpreting things that really got concretized in my unconscious. You know, a, a child's brain, if mommy is happy, I must be a good kid. If mommy is upset, I must be a bad kid. And that's not reality. We don't know what was going on. My mother had undiagnosed mental health issues and it showed up as depression or rage. I can intellectually understand that none of that was my fault. But when she was yelling, when she was yelling and screaming at me, I took it on. When she was lying on the couch for three days, I thought mommy didn't love me. It doesn't mean it's true or untrue. It means that the story that's alive in me, that's what we can heal. We can have power over that, not from a place of blame, but from a place of curiosity. That's interesting. And, and, I remember when I was in college, junior college, taking a photography class 
And um, I was running around all over the place, just looking for things to take pictures of. And I came across this car accident mm. and I did my best without getting in the way. I moved around the incident, which was literally in the intersection. Mm. And what that brought back to mind was this, this analogy that you could take 10 people who saw the same car accident from 10 different perspectives on the circle. It's kind of our analogy for this program. Yeah. And you will get 10 different descriptions. Yeah. And now it's up to, shall we call them the accident profiler of sorts <laughs> to take all 10 descriptions and not nullifying any of them and then put together what really happened. Mm. So my question to you is uh, if you choose to answer this on a personal level, but how do you help others when you're facilitating to take all of those different perspectives, if hopefully they might have them and put them into a framework that helps them and you to release that trauma, if you will, that, that, uh, that injury, that internal fear, whatever it is that, that, that is created by the trauma. Well, I want to start with, I love your analogy and there's something more going on, not just our perspective in the physical realm, the 10 different viewpoints, but what, how we interpret it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, in my first book I write about, and this, this is an incident that actually happened. I heard two people, and this is in my spiritual community, ironically, are literally arguing about the chairs in the sanctuary, were they blue or were they green? And I just thought it was fascinating. So I just <laughs> sat and started taking notes. It was like eating the popcorn, right? They were absolutely both clear that it was either blue or green. And I'm thinking, you know, it's teal, right? So you're both right. But what happens is we end <laughs> up in the paradigm that sounds like this. There's your version of reality, my version of reality, and the truth is in between. And I want to throw that up, blow that up and say, what if we were to start looking at it as there's your point of view and my point of view, and they're both 100% correct based on perspective. And when I say perspective, I'm not just saying, you know, where we're standing in the room, which obviously is true. And I know you're using that as a metaphor too, but it's also my life experience, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I do this work in one of my conscious recovery groups and um, I go into treatment programs and they use my curriculum. We actually do something with a chair and we ask people to describe what they see. And they some of them have a limited perspective, so they might see the back of the chair. So they can't see what's in the chair, but it doesn't make them wrong. But what is even more interesting is someone will say, I see an ugly chair, or I see a chair that looks really uncomfortable, or why did why do we have such horrible chairs? This place has money. I mean, when the judgments start to come in, mm. then we start to change it, right? And you know, we could go down a rabbit hole with quantum mechanics, which I love going down, but we actually <laughs> create reality based on our point of view. So mm -hmm. that was a very long-winded way of saying the way we heal the past isn't to try to figure out what happened but to figure out what we decided about what happened and what's still alive within us. Not that we're going to change our thinking to get through it. We're actually going to go back and heal it and have a different conclusion and therefore change what we called, once called reality. 
PJ Woodward is my guest, and you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, I want to I want to fantail off of that a little bit because it seems to me there's a there's an addiction that's that's going around that's been going around for uh, probably maybe since human existence, but to keep it a little more localized, probably in the last seven, uh, seven or eight years uh, that people have their perspectives. And I, 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 I'm going to, I like watching these little YouTube shorts. Okay. Cause they go by in 15, 30, 60 seconds. And then you move on to the next one. And it's, it's fascinating. Some of the things I see, the, the, the acts of kindness are, I just, Tears come to my eyes sometimes when I see some of these. It's just amazing. This one guy called Zach, for example, who goes out and hands out money to people after asking them for money uh, for a bus fare or this or that or the other. And he only wants a couple of bucks. And when they do give it to him or they show the inclination that if they had it, they would. He says, here's 500. Here's a thousand and so forth. It's wonderful. But that's not what I'm talking about. There was this one guy that was questioning a guy with one of those red hats with right white writing on them. You know what I'm talking about? I sure do. And was asked the question, uh, actually was responding to a question in regards to 9-11 and, 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 and w- why wasn't Obama in the White House? Why wasn't he in the West Wing yeah. when 9-11 happened? Where was he? And the guy <laughs> says, yeah, well, I'd really like to have them get to the bottom of that. We need to know where the heck he was. And and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, we're talking perspective here. You and I, TJ, we're talking about points of view, but we've got a lot of people who are so entrenched on both sides. I'm not picking on one here. I'm just using that as an example on both sides who, as you, as you talk about being right and the other side is wrong. Did you see the survey uh, regarding the, I think it was right prior to the 2016, it might have been the 2020 presidential election. Both Republican voters and Democratic voters were asked this question. What what do you think would uh, 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 make make things work better and, and make this country a better place? And the highest percentage, over 50 percent, said basically if the other side would just disappear, <laughs> would just go yeah. away. Yeah, And it's like are you kidding? You are talking about, in essence, the annihilation of other human beings. That's what you're talking about. Is that really what you want? Yeah. So when we're dealing with people with addictions, we've got people with addictions who are, maybe they are addicted to the news. They are addicted to a particular philosophy. I mean, we've seen cults, for example, whether it's when you want to go back to 73 and Jim Jones, or you want to talk about, uh, uh, Heaven's Gate. Some claim that uh, Koresh and his people were were a cult, and so on and so on and so on. So we've got mind addictions as well, uh, and emotional addictions, right? Where we will yeah. create scenarios that foster that emotion. Well, I want to start you, by yeah. Go ahead. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Well, I want to start by applauding you because not many people are willing to have this conversation. You know, um, I, we 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 do media pitches, right? And one of the media pitches that we put out to the media a month or so ago is living beyond cancel culture. Not one show picked it up. 
right? And that's just informational. It's not good mm-hmm. or bad. It's like, I really want to have a conversation about how we, how we can actually heal this. And so yes. I applaud you for asking the question because not many do because, oh, that's sticky. Let's not go there, right? But this is actually what is required for us right now to heal. And I think the number one addiction that we have right now, you know, we could call it drama or we could call it division or, you know, polarization. I don't think we're a polarized country. I think we've been conditioned to have polarized thinking. And it's exactly what you said. If the perceived enemy would just be eradicated, I could be free. Mm -hmm. You know, um, as a gay man who grew up in through the AIDS um, epidemic or pandemic and watched people saying it's this one religious leader, if he would just die, we could be free. That person would move on then there'd be someone else to be angry at, right? And I'm not saying, see, what happens is we we might hear me saying, you know, people get in trouble when they say there's wonderful people on both sides. Are you saying there are wonderful people who are Nazis? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is each of us needs to be responsible to heal the inner polarization. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't heal the inner polarization, we will continue to see it in the outer, but only 100% of the time. This has been in human history throughout time. Clearly, we did have the Holocaust. We did have wars throughout history. And every time it was this idea of them and us and good and bad, always, whether it's religion or land or patriotism, all of these things are deeply entrenched in I have the answer and you are wrong, or sometimes I'm wrong and you're right. But the only way we're actually going to heal this is to pause and be accountable. I'll give you an example. I think it's a great example. My dad and his wife, who I love, live in, they say they live in LA, lower Alabama. And apparently that's the joke. (laughs) Everyone calls it LA, right? And so I live in LA now in the greater LA area and they came to visit. And my, my dad's wife, who I adore said, everyone's so nice here. Everyone in the other LA, lower Alabama said everyone in LA was going to be conceited and mean and selfish. So we have these stories, right? And and by the way, I'm not letting anyone in this LA off the hook, because if, if we interviewed about 15 people in LA, in California, what they thought of lower Alabama, I'm guessing it would be filled with all kinds of stereotypes. Oh, yeah. There might be some truth to all of that. But I appreciate that you're talking about it. Because We all hold unconscious biases, and it's all a projection of something within. The reason the news is is seductive is that it touches the wound, and the wound gets activated, and then we can project outward. And that's where we got into cancel culture. That person is a racist. That person is horrible. That person is evil. Instead of pausing and saying, in what way am I contributing to this? And mm-hmm. I know that this pushes buttons for people. They're like, are you saying there's really no evil and that we, you know, this, all this behavior is okay. Cause sometimes they're like, are you just going to bury your head in the sand? Mm-hmm. But you said so beautifully, we can either watch the acts of kindness or we can watch the acts of violence. And when we become addicted to the acts of violence, which starts within, we will have more. It is so simple, but for yeah. some yeah. reason, when people are not healed, you know, look at Twitter. It's just people ranting now. That's what it is, right? Yeah. And it's, I see it as like, oh, look at all these unhealed people blaming each other yeah. and thinking if they would just do it my way, I could be free. 
Well, there's a third step that I referred to earlier, the first two that I, I made reference to, and it actually is a four-step process I've I've been through. And the third step is basically what uh, it sort of adds to what you're talking about. And it asks the question from a sincere, humble, loving heart, human being to human being, what is it that you're so afraid of that makes you talk and behave and do the things that you do? I'm not asking you to change. I'm wanting to understand so I can move on with my life, so I can let this go and move on. Some would say, well, wh why do you need to know? What wh what does it matter to you? Well, because then I have an understanding of where this person is coming from. I read an article some years ago about the Kennedy family. And the the question was sort of posed in the first or second paragraph about uh, why people have the perception of the Kennedys that they do, regardless of who it is, whether it's Ted or Jack or Robert or whoever it is. And and that the perception through uh, some circles is that, you know, well, they're, you know, they're they're liars and they're cheaters and they're this and I mean, labeling them. I mean, no judgment left and right. Yeah. And it was interesting because the way the article ended, it said basically the Kennedys behave the way they do because for them, for them, that's the way it is. Right. And then you hear from people who came from very poor uh, beginnings. Uh, my father, for example, uh, he was telling me um, that he grew up, his family grew up very poor in Coolidge, Arizona, but he didn't know they were poor. Uh, he just knew that, you know, th they had what they needed, needed when they needed it. They had community, I'm sure, and so forth, and relatives surrounding them. That was the environment he grew up in. Now, we grew up in a middle class family in the center of Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I used to think that we were lower, lower middle class because of some of the families around us and some of the things that they had. And the, the older I got, the more I realized, okay, no, uh, if, if we're going to put a label, it's middle class, but we never wanted, we never needed our parents provided and so forth. And so this seems to me the, the, the crux of this question that I ask is maybe instead of the reaction that I had uh, initially about dislike and maybe even hatred for that matter, judgment shifts to empathy, you know, not pity, but understanding. Now I can move on. You do whatever you're going to do. You feel free to behave that way. You know, I'm not going to watch anymore and I'm not going to listen, but at least now I understand why you're doing it. And it does not going to affect me anymore in the way that it has in the past. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, and, and, and what's interesting as you're speaking, I'm imagining that there might be someone who is watching right now and saying, it can't be that. That can't be it because there is literally, there are things happening. There are corrupt people on this side this of the political aisle, if you will, as an example, or in this religion or this so-called cult. And we must, you know, someone, someone got really upset with me when I was speaking once and said, you are saying that we shouldn't be doing something about this. And what I want to offer is so simple, but it requires us kind of pausing for a moment 
and saying, how has it been working? Because we've been fighting for thousands of years. And I wonder what might happen if we were to start to look at not is something evil happening that we must eradicate? Mm-hmm. Or what if we were to say, what 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 is what is wanted to be healed here? What is the commonality here? How do we because you know the the polarized thinking that we see is is obviously escalated by social media. Mm-hmm. And and we we get our news now. I, I like to joke, well, it must be true. I, I saw it on TikTok, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just based in someone's point of view. So like mm-hmm. it seems to be seems to be that gone are the days of um, journalism where they're actually looking at how to have an impartial story, even the major news outlets. That's why I quit watching about four or five years ago completely, not because I'm burying my head in the sand, but because I could watch CNN and watch Fox News and realize that they're they're not unbiased. They're not even pretending to be unbiased anymore. And so in order for us to unplug from that, because, you know, I have a group of friends who say, well, that news station is biased. Not ours, though. They're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the predicament we're in. So what is what is being asked of us is to pause and to look at what needs to be healed internally so that I'm no longer projecting this. And, you know, to be really practical, what if I actually sit down and hear someone? What if I ask three questions instead of giving an opinion? looking for the empathy, looking for the commonality, you know, looking for what all humans desire on some level, which is love and connection. We all have different ways. You know, there was a survey done of, of people in the United States and the number one thing people wanted was security. And for some security means building a wall and for others, security means tearing it down. Mm-hmm. They yeah. want the same thing. They have a different interpretation of what's going to bring it. Exactly. We are talking with uh, T.J. Wood- Woodward, and you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host of Tell Me Your Story, tjwoodward.com. That is the website that uh, we encourage you to um, we encourage you to go to to find out more about the work that he's doing, the three books that he has, uh, and uh, the area in which he is working is uh, a big one. It's recovery from a lot of these things. To dovetail off of uh, what you just said, I saw one of these shorts. Morgan Freeman was being interviewed Hmm. and he was asked about racism. And he says, do you think that uh, uh, we should, we should uh, have more conversations about racism and trying to understand why people think the way they do about these different people and blah, 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 blah. And Morgan Freeman says, and again, Morgan Freeman is a black man. He says, we wouldn't have a problem with racism if we would stop talking about it. Case in point for me personally, I was sharing with a good friend of mine some 40 years ago about a personal issue. And I was working at the Christian station at the time, being bombarded by all of that uh, dogma. And I shared this with her and she says, well, Richard, the more you talk about it, the more power you give it. You think Morgan is right? Well, I mean, Morgan is right because it was his point of view, right? As sure, sure. Discussing. So um, I would say we all have our point of view. Sure. For me, for me, what what happened in 2020 and all of this came to the surface for me, and this is, again, just for me, not for anyone else. What right. I wanted to do is unplug from the static 
and look at in what ways I'm contributing to it, whether that's talking about it or not talking about it, what biases am I holding? And, you know, I happen to be married to a man who is a person of color, right? And so we had some deep conversations that were sometimes difficult. Mm. And what I got mm. from that conversation was him um, emotionally saying, we're just asking people to look, but instead they're pointing fingers. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, that's so beautiful, right? Because um, what I interpreted, and again, he might not have, he might not have even said that. That's just my memory, <laughs> right? <laughs> but let's imagine he did. What that was for me was a request to look at the ways that I'm holding biases, which we all have about everything, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. The South is this, the North is this, you know, Russia is that. We all have the things that we've been programmed to believe and we see them everywhere because of that program. So, you know, I could see how Morgan, what, what he might be saying is the more we keep talking about it, the more we're giving it energy and we could pause. And I don't know if he's saying this, but what I'm going to say is, pause and reflect, you know, I grew up with a grandfather who I loved and who mm -hmm. also used the N word, like it was, can I have a cup of coffee? Mm. Right. And so I grew up with this very interesting dichotomy of here's a man I love. And he's saying these over overtly racist things. And how do I, you know, um, yeah, I yeah. was, I was also, um, you know, when we were, we were bust into the inner city into predominantly black schools and the rage and the anger on both sides of that. I lived that. Um, I then lived in a city where it was completely segregated. We had like two black people in our school, right? So there's no way I didn't come out of that with biases. So the healing isn't what's happening out there. The healing is what's happening in here. So maybe in that way, we would talk about it less, but I think having the conversations are important, but one of the things I heard people saying is, you know, and, and this is someone that said it, not me, dear white people, stop talking to me, the person of color about race and go talk to your white friends. What are you doing to heal it? And I thought, wow, that's so true mm -hmm. for me. That was so true. Mm -hmm. Let me look at, and, and so, you know, again, it's paradoxical, right? So we could say, let's stop talking <laughs> about it. And then we can say, let's have deeper conversations about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's interesting the things that come to mind as we're we're having this conversation because uh, uh, I I I think about for example I, I, there's a lot of anti-Semitism going on in the world today and in this country yeah. and I'm sitting here thinking okay I want a list of the grievances against the Jews I want a list and then what we're going to do is we're going to fact check them. And one of them that came to mind, and I was talking with someone about this, and we both came to the same conclusion. The, the allegation is that the Jews run the media. Well, I'm in the media, and I'm only 1% Jew. I didn't know that until I had my DNA checked, okay? And it's Eastern European, all right? In any event, the Jews run and own the media. And I'm sitting here thinking, they should actually be applauded that they were actually able to do that. They should be given credit for that, not castigated. Uh, then you hear the story of, um, what was it referred to as Black Wall Street? Was it was in Arkansas or Oklahoma? I'm trying to remember where it was. And then it was burned to the ground. Yeah. All right, well, let's back up. It was there and it was prosperous. And that to me showed that the blacks in that community, they were doing great stuff you know what i'm saying they were making they were 
they were taking care of themselves and their families and their community. They should be applauded, not criticized. And whatever other nationality or whatever other group you want to list uh, under under these these uh, th this particular banner, shall we say, they should be given credit for. They should be applauded for the accomplishments that not only they made to themselves and their community, but to the whole of society. You know, I mean, yeah, okay, we can talk about, as you said, you know, the the polarized mindset that exists today, yeah. you know, but if we stop and take a look at the things, it's, I think an, an, an even more well-defined example would be Albert Einstein told the story of himself as a child in school, asked to go come up to the board and write down his timetables for nine. So he did. And he chalked on the board. Nine times one is nine. Nine times two is 18, et cetera, et cetera. Until he got to nine times nine, put down 81. And then he put down nine times 10. He put 91 and the class went berserk. They mm. just criticized and so on and so on. Finally, when everything calmed down, he says, isn't it interesting how I got nine correct and nothing, not a sound. But then when I get the one wrong, you jump all over me. Yeah. And well, we do that to ourselves. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think, you know, this, these conversations are, are multi-layered and I, I think it is important for us to acknowledge what is the story that we're passing down with through intergenerational trauma. Yeah. And it doesn't mean we want to forget because I think that also, you know, carries with it a traumatic result. Um, I think that all, you know, again, it's always paradoxical and multi-layered to speak about it. But what I want to really offer is the stories, I think there are three steps, awareness, awareness, mm -hmm. and awareness, mm -hmm. right? Am I aware of this story and what impact it has on me? You know, I mean, I remember growing up um, and my my mom pretty much every day said, we can't afford that. There's not enough money. We're poor. And like you, I was like, okay, I, I just believed we were poor. But then later I'm like, wait a minute, we had a four bedroom house with two cars and you know, we we went to a very nice school, this award-winning high school. And I'm like, wait a minute, I wasn't poor, but I believed it mm -hmm. because that was the story, right? So um, we want to be really careful here because what, what, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying pretend like something didn't happen mm -hmm. or try to minimize the impact because that's all very real because that's that intergenerational trauma. But we also want to look at what are the stories we're passing along and, and sharing. And, you know, now in these days, what am I clicking on and what am I sharing? Because consciousness is an algorithm. And an algorithm on social media is super simple. Whatever you click on, they give you more of, and it's instantaneous. So if I click on divisive topics, I will get more of them. I woke up one day and thought, I am going to have only love in my newsfeed. And I worked through it with consciousness, and lo and behold, it happened. And again, what I'm not saying is I'm going to pretend like the events of the world aren't happening. What I am right. saying is the more I'm sharing those and getting in there and being angry, it actually increases it. There's there's a political figure in the United States who keeps coming into power because so many people hate him. It's so yeah. remarkable to me. And I see it. I see it so clearly. And people are like, well, that's ridiculous. We must fight against him. Well, look what's happening. Yeah. And, and, and again, the, uh, we, we do this, the more power we give. And I, I remember um, uh, just, just uh, wrapping this up here. I remember uh, watching during the 2016 campaign, I'm going, 
is he paying for this? Is he paying for all this media attention? They're just giving all of, and then there was a statistic that came out and it was close to the end of the, of the, of the campaign. They did an evaluation dollar wise evaluation of all of the free media that he was given. Right. It was in the billions, billions of dollars of free airtime that none of the other candidates got. Uh, and, and, and I just thought, ah, please don't let this happen again in 2020. And they didn't, they, they stayed away. Uh, one final point I want to bring up, uh, as far as you, um, and, and I was working, as I said before, at this Christian radio station, I was there 15 years, um, best education I was ever paid for boy did I learn a lot. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was so bizarre was the castigation, of course, of the gay and lesbian community yeah, and how they kept saying it was a choice. And I sat there thinking, okay, I was, and at the time I was legally blind. I didn't choose to be legally blind. That is the way I came out of my mother's womb. Okay. Um, and I got bullied and I got harassed and so forth. And if it were my druthers, I probably would have liked to have come in here with a regular vision and I wouldn't have been bothered. Well, as you and others, as uh, uh, um, uh, with same-sex partners and so forth, who in their right mind would choose a lifestyle that's going to get them the kind of hate? And I have to say that when Jerry Falwell finally passed away, I'm going, at least now he knows the truth. At least I hope he does. (laughs) Uh, But I thought, I thought, I didn't choose this, but would I have knowing what was coming? Probably not. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm going, where are you people getting this whole business of choice? You know, you're choosing to be bitter and angry based upon what you have been taught towards this particular segment of our society. And I've said to many, many people who are part of the LGBTQ community, and I know there are other initials there. I can't remember them all. Uh, After interviews, I say to them, because you are a human being, you belong. And the people that I've been talking with are Americans. And because you are an American, you belong, period. End of story. And that is where I, I am coming from. Um, I'm saddened by the fact that we've got people who are coming across our Southern border and other places too, who see this as a bastion of hope and so forth. And that's wonderful that that's what they see and that they want to make a better life for themselves, getting away from the tyranny and all of this kind of stuff that they're escaping. They're human beings. And yet we treat them as, as though they're just numbers or they're undesirables. Uh, and so on and so forth. And it's like, we're all human beings on this planet. We're all trying to do the best we can. We really are. Some of us are are doing more so than others. Um, what are your thoughts? And again, uh, I, and I take the same position as you when I share things of, from myself. This is me. This is mine only. Okay. If you take it on, that's your responsibility, not mine. I'm not putting it on anybody. <laughs> share with us your perspective in terms of belonging to a community 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, it is kind of, as you said, we're wrapping up. I think that that it kind of it really comes full circle because it comes back to this idea that we get programmed to believe that we're different fundamentally fundamentally than other people. And that's been happening throughout history, right? This is nothing new. We, mm-hmm. um, I, my, my thought about this is that early in our evolution, we needed a tribe to stay alive, right? We needed mm-hmm. to find our people to stay safe. That's no longer true, but that's still kind of in our DNA because you know, now with epigenetics, we know that we're changing our DNA through generational trauma and that could be a whole show. Yeah. But we, there's something innate in us or at least partially innate in us, but I think it's actually programmed in us to look for the other, whether that's race, sexual orientation, na- um, nation, you know, our nation of origin, all the different things that we look at to see each other as different. And from that stem all conflict in the world the way we heal that is from the inside out and this is the way i will say it you know only 100 of the time i'm not going to heal it out there until i heal, heal it in here and so that you know lao tzu said this how many thousands of years ago the greatest gift we can offer the world is that of our own transformation and that really is what we're saying here that's what i'm saying here you know the conditions of the world have always been this thing happening yeah. But, you know, there's also been a lot of love. There's been a lot of connection. There's been a lot of joy that is actually happening way more than all the other, but the other, for whatever reason is seductive. So as I heal me, I heal you because I change the way I see the world. I unplug from trying to change the world and I plug into healing myself and then suddenly the world changes. Yeah. I'm with you there. I am absolutely with you on that, on that point. And, uh, I work really hard to 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 maintain that attitude that, okay, uh, what is it that's grabbing my attention on the outside? Okay, so what do I need to look at on the inside? And, uh, you know, we just keep chipping away or peeling away the layers of the onion, as they say, uh, to to get to the core of who we really are. And I think um, my personal belief that where Jesus spoke to his disciples about how they wanted to learn how to do the miracles that he did, changing water into wine and healing people and raising the dead and so forth. But he says, yeah, this sure. I, you bet I'll teach you, but this stuff is nothing compared to the works that you guys are going to do that you people are going to do. And I believe you use the word. And I believe the greatest miracle is transforming our lives. Absolutely. I want to ask you one final question here in the context of the interview, any relation to uh, uh, the journalist Woodward? Not that I'm aware of, nor am I (laughs) related to Joanne Woodward as far as I know either, but you never know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, we maybe one day we'll find out through DNA testing. It's a wonderful thing. I've learned a lot. Uh, So um, this is wonderful. TJ Woodward, my guest, and this is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program as we wrap things up here on this program. Uh, TJ, I want to thank you so much for the time and the conversation, and I'm hoping that people will take it in the in with the in the intention that it was uh, delivered, and that is uh, with love and compassion and understanding, and that hey, we're just we're just we're just doing the best we can. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was an honor to be here with you.
I have three other questions that I ask you as I ask all of my guests at the end of the program. But before I do, I want to thank you for listening to and watching. Tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We're here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. That's our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. We podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations, as well as on YouTube, where we have a video cast, I like to call it. We hope that you will uh, subscribe, but at the very least, click notifications so that you'll know when a new conversation is available for you to listen to and or watch. We also ask that you spend time going within during this, the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. Spend that quiet, peaceful time listening to that still small voice and if you can support the work that we are doing financially we would greatly appreciate that we have a paypal account it is there for your security as well as ours they'll ask you for an email address to whom to send the contribution richard at richarddugan.com that's richard at richarddugan.com and with that we go to our three final questions for our guest and the first of those three is who is tj woodward I am an infinite being dedicated to curiosity. That's what's coming to mind. <laughs> what is your life's purpose? My life's purpose is to share this exact message that each of us is a whole and perfect being and that we can actually deeply connect or reconnect with that truth and have a life filled with infinite possibilities. And finally, what was your best day? Well, it's this one because it's the only one that actually exists. <laughs> I get that a lot. And I, I thank bet you too. That. Yeah, that's, that's the truth, right? <laughs> well, again, thank you for joining us. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And until our next broadcast, podcast, video cast, love to lol, Jeanette, I am listening. And dad, be happy. <laughs>